0: Welcome to the No Referees Podcast, where we have unpenalized conversations with sports personalities on industry news, their grind, the game, and much more. Please check us out on our social media pages at No Referees Pod for up-to-date info on the show. No rules, no texts, no whistles. This is No Referees Podcast. Welcome back to the No Referees Podcast. I'm your host, Everest Ajobi, joined today with my special co-host, Sheree Farrow. Today on the line, we have a very, very special guest, the Chief High Performance Director of USA Water Polo. He is a guy that has about every basketball jersey in his closet. <laughs> <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at Coach underscore Abdu and on Instagram at Coach Abdu. My man, my brother from another mother, mm-hmm.
1: John Abdul. What's up, bro? What's up, man? Good to see you, Everest. Nice to meet you, Sharif. Good to have good you, John.
0: you, Yeah, mm-hmm. man. Good to see you, brother. Hey, man. You a Lakers fan? You a Clippers fan? You a, a Rockets fan? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what fan you are. I know you're a huge hoop fan, but you're from Cali, so
1: I'm trying to figure out what you're doing. First of all, I love hoops. Second of all, I was born in I was born in Egypt. Moved to Houston right away. We moved from Egypt. I was like two, three years old. We go to Houston. This is like early 80s, right? So who's good in the early 80s? This is the Lakers. This is uh, the, the Rockets. We're obviously just getting going, right? So while we were living in Houston, the Ralph Sampson, Hakeem Olajuwon days were, were, were getting going. Showtime was going. So I just loved hoops, man. My uncle, my pops, everybody was just a lot of hoops in my in my younger days. So I, while I cheer for certain teams at times, I just honestly – I love the NBA. I love hoops. I love college hoops. I love I love all of it. So that's that's where it's at, man. So you're a Clippers fan too? I see. Yeah. Well, look, you know, for not everybody growing up in Los Angeles can afford Laker tickets too. When we came, so then we moved from Houston. <laughs> we moved to Los Angeles, right? I mean, it's not uh, there was. I tell the story sometimes in our local newspaper where I was growing up in uh, San Gabriel Valley. That newspaper would have buy one get one free Clipper tickets when they were playing wow. at the Sports Arena in L.A. So every time, and the Clippers were terrible, right, in this, in this time period, but you, they would play the Bulls, right? They would play, they'd play the Rockets. They'd play the Knicks. So anytime I wanted to see Ewing and if I wanted to go see Jordan, if I wanted to go see Barkley, Olajuwon, anybody, you go to the Clipper game, right? You get to buy one game, a free ticket, and you get to watch these great players play. So that's, that's how my love for the Clippers started. I still got love for them because that's how I got to watch accessible hoops. And then when you got older and you got a little money, Maybe you can afford a little bit of Lakers. Oh
0: yeah, you was rolled up to the Le- the Lakers staple Center, you know, back
1: in the uh, the Shaq and Kobe days. That's right, that's right. But so <laughs> I know hoops is hoops, man, and and it and it blends in all sports. So I, I love it, and I'm sure we all miss it right now too, because I know you are a big hoops man.
0: Yeah, man. Hey, I remember the the very first time I went to a, a NBA game. I actually, I saw the, the old Hakeem Olajuwon. That's when they called him a He before yeah. the H. Yep, I used to go yep. to games back in the day. So, I actually, I know exactly what you're talking about. So these days, you know, the coronavirus situation is going on. Everybody talking about binge-watching and Netflix and Hulu, all that good stuff. You know, I know you're still pretty busy because you're a part of the Olympic situation and trying to, you know, navigate through those waters for next year. You know, yeah. what are you watching at home with your wife and your kids on Netflix and then your know, Hulu, all that good stuff? And what are you recommending other people to watch?
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that's funny because I think a lot of people who have parents with kids our age ain't watching very much TV. And if they're watching very much TV, <laughs> I mean, they're watching Disney movies right now. Disney Plus is the best investment you can make during the, the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. As we speak. So but that's what's keeping them quiet. That's why we're not hearing some kids running in the back. But I think uh, – so we're watching a lot of kids' movies. We watch a lot of kids' movies. Me personally, I I haven't been able to watch a, lo- a lot of TV. Um, I know everybody got on that Tiger King binge for a little bit because I had to, like, so I stayed up a little bit at night to watch some of that um, once, <laughs> but once, once I got through, burned through those seven episodes. I've actually been listening to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of your podcasts, you know, on, to, to be fair. You know, I want to um, hear a lot of the stories from these NBA players, WNBA players, right? We have um, Teresa Witherspoon on, right? All these people that I was, you know, heroes. So it's an honor just to even be on your podcast right now with some of the, the folks you've had on before. I've been, yeah. I've been trying to keep a, this earbud in my head. So if the kids are doing something, I keep this on. And listen good. to kind of podcasts podcasts <laughs> as I can. Um, along the way, I think there's, there's, there's so much good content out there. And I think right now there's a massive, uh, boon in content on, on there's a lot more, um, coach education material being, being put out there across the board, a lot of high performance stuff. Um, you know, I heard coach Christian on here last week, talking about Michael Gervais. That's a great, a great podcast to be listened to. Uh, NPR has a, has a good one called how I built this. By a lot of startup companies and their founders, how, how it came up. I, I love that one. I think I, I get a lot out of that. There's a lot of water polo specific ones that are starting uh, up that have, that have been very good too. So, you know, there's, there's, there's no shortage of listening to it. And, and the last one I'll plug too, is I've been listening to a lot of, um, a lot of stoicism, big Ryan holiday fan, you know, as I think for everybody out there, the, the daily stoic, um, you know, he his, one of his big books. I know a lot of sports team read was ego is the enemy. Uh, the other one was the obstacle is the way. Um, So he's turned a lot of that into, you know, podcast type, uh, very accessible material. And I think that's been very helpful for me and and I think really helpful for everybody, especially during these times, you know, learning to control what you can control and keeping your mind right. Before we get into everything water polo, I
0: just want to bring in our special guest co-host, Sharif Farrell, who is a current uh, firefighter for FDNY in New York City. He's also a triathlete. He's also a Golden Glove winner. He's done pretty much everything. First and foremost, I just want to say thank you for your service out there in New York City, and uh, hope you're staying safe. Um, can you give us a little quick overview of what the climate's like going on right now in New York City and uh, that part of the country? Uh, well, the whole Northeast is uh,
2: pretty much on lockdown, you know. Uh, everybody's taking precaution, doing social distancing, um, taking the measures needed to keep everybody safe.
0: Well, as firefighters, y'all have the, the masks kid on all oh, yeah stuff yeah we are
2: ppe protective personal equipment we have a uh, plenty of that that you know help us out with, with special calls when we are out and about you know helping uh on medical runs um yeah it's just it's been a little chaotic but you know we have our friends and family persevering with us everybody's helping each other out and you we know we're gonna get through it keeping new york tough
0: Okay, all right. Stay right there on that topic. But, Coach, you're in California, and we hear a lot of stuff coming out of California, especially with the governor and the mayor and all, you know, uh, having all their different talks about how, you know, y'all gonna do y'all own thing when it's time to reopen. Now, give us the climate, you know, what's going on out there in California right now with this coronavirus situation.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we're generally in the same spot as as, as the Northeast, like Shree said. We're, we're, we're on lockdown. Everybody's, everybody's sheltering at home, everybody's staying put. Uh, and, and generally doing a good job of it. I know I know the media has hyped up a couple little spots of some protests coming up, you know, where people are uh, uh, shouting for liberation. But I, I would say for the most part, the state's doing a, a, a phenomenal job of just everybody staying put, right, trying to flatten the curve altogether. So there's there's been a lot of joint effort. It certainly doesn't come with a lot of angst, you know, where I think people are um, anxious to get outside and anxious to be active again and actually anxious to get the economy open. But um, but i think everybody's doing their part and it's pretty it's pretty cool to see when you when you could look at the traffic reports or you look at um any of the, uh, the sky there's less smog there's almost no smog flying over los angeles and the freeways are empty and that's that's almost never happened right so it's uh it's a beautiful thing to see where people are actually really trying to work together to make this work
0: actually i was reading a report the other day about how you mentioned the smog and the pollution of traffic in mean, dubai they it's like the clearest days they've had in the last 30 something years where just, just the pollution is just non-existent so i definitely can understand that being a guy from texas we got people driving around cars everywhere yeah. it's, it's like everything just went to a complete stop yeah, yeah so coach stand right there the biggest hot topic that we we've heard with the coronavirus situation uh, leagues canceling uh, things being postponed the olympics you know the, the 2020 yeah. tokyo olympics you're a very very integral part of that with usa water polo just give us some some insight on you know leading up to the days and the conversations y'all was having before uh, they decided to postpone the Olympics.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was a, definitely a stressful time, and it was a lot, a lot of time of uh, uncertainty. And so, just my my role with the my role with the teams um, before the Rio Olympics, and then moving moving now forward as a as a high performance director, high performance officer is essentially like a general manager, right? So like a, a general manage both of the squads, and um, so I got coaches who who run the team. So I and we don't necessarily have a facility, right? That's our own yet. We're working, we're working on that, right? So different than some of these places, I got a men's team that's working out in one facility, women's team that's working out in another facility. Both facilities were dealing with their own timelines of when they would be, feel safe to leave people in or kick people out, right? So that wasn't uniform. Um, we got our athletes from all over. We had athletes actually playing. Some people on our men's team were playing abroad in leagues in spain leagues in um in europe Uh, we had an athlete playing in croatia so we got athletes in europe on the men's side we got our women's team was in full-time training in one spot um some were still in uh uh, also finishing school so all kinds of different levels of of uh involvement with our athletes so really the two weeks i would say the first two weeks of march were really stressful just just trying to figure out hey what are we going to do to to make this uniform and to keep our athletes safe. But also if these Olympics don't get postponed, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot while we're trying to train a peak, which is we were about a month away from naming the squads. Right. So mm-hmm. when we finally went away, we were four weeks away from, uh, announcing the teams, which was, uh, you know, for some of these people let's call called a group of 18 athletes or so vying for about 12 or 13 spots on the team. Right. So that's, um, a pretty stressful thing for them to be dealing with at that time, and then to have it pulled out from under them before the naming of the teams and before we even knew the Olympics were going to get postponed was, again, another kind of stressful time. Something else we were going through is we were trying to get – think about Spain. You all probably heard about what's happening in Spain at that time, and it was getting pretty pretty bad there before it got bad here. We had athletes who were there playing in leagues. Wow. And we, were, we were like – there were a couple of nights in a row where we were just trying to quickly get them on planes to get them back to the States um, and get them home safe before um, – you know, the Trump administration decided to, uh, ban travel right in and out of Europe at that time. So we beat that buzzer by like 24 hours, right? Uh-huh. So we got our boys home within 24 hours of the, of that ban coming through. So, um, all that being said, it was, you know, just said in the scene of what was kind of a stressful moment. But then I think once the announcement came that the Olympics were going to be postponed, mm-hmm. I think everybody breathed a little bit of sigh of relief because then it's, it's better to know than to be uncertain, right. Than to live in that uncertainty. And once everybody knew, then now the challenges of trying to um, backtrack from there. We know the end result is going to be potentially an Olympic Games in July of 2021. Now we got to figure it out from here. So. There's a lot of things that go on the back end
0: with you know athletes that compete in the Olympics. They you know, have to train for four years. Uh, you know, just kind of give some insight on you know just the development, the training leading up to this, and now how not being able to compete this year. Will like maybe put uh, like some damper in some kids' mind or some you know people' uh, mind moving forward.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're 100 right, so I mean, you guys, you guys know, and I think um, maybe not, but maybe not everybody out listening would uh, would appreciate that. Athletes that are training for Olympic games, especially in a sport like ours, like water polo, they're generally amateurs. So even if I say people are playing in professional leagues in Europe, they're they're not getting rich off of that, right? That's that's they're making enough money to to live, eat get better at the sport they want to play, have a cultural experience, you know, living abroad. But the reality is these are NCAA amateur athletes who, with a lack of a professional league, right, that are either recently graduated um, or some are still in school. And then any older athlete we have is really, has now manipulated their life to be able to play, our, play the sport, right, without um, being able to make a lot of money doing so. Uh, and that's not just water polo; that's a lot of Olympic sports, right? So then when you say, hey, the Olympics are going to be out one year, now you're telling that same athlete, hey, you took a year off school. Yeah, maybe you can't go back to school. Or maybe you do, and then you start your training gets sacrificed. You know, these professional links may not be happening. It's, hey, you got to stick around a year, but you're not going to be able to go back and make the money and have that experience abroad. So um, we're, we're in the middle of that right now, right? And it's a case-by-case basis with all the athletes and just trying to work with them. But I think it's a really good opportunity for everybody in our country to realize that if you want to be an Olympic athlete <laughs> – other than, you know, the people that you work with closely in the NBA or professional sports, right, that move over to that, USA Basketball, different story, that these are amateur athletes that uh, need some support, and there is no government support, right? In the United mm-hmm. States, we do, the government does not support the Olympic athlete movement, right? This comes from a, a, private non, a, a non-profit private entity called the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, right? U.S. for OPC, mm-hmm. that's different. So it's good for, for everyone to understand that. Where our competitors are, coming out of Europe, South America, where these are fully government-funded, the entire country behind the team, here, it's it's a little more pieced together. So it's much more complex, I should say.
2: Yeah. Well, two things uh, that you mentioned about um, being paid as an athlete through the other countries. Behind that, how come the U.S. does not pay or kind of fund the athletes in situations not just like this, but in general?
1: Yeah. No, it's a good. I mean, it's a. That's honestly a good question for our for our, uh, our our congressmen and women, right? And it's something mm. that that happens in that sense because in it, w- there was something called the Ted Stevens Act that came out um, a few decades ago, and that was that kept uh, athletes at the amateur level, right? Coming in coming into the Olympic Games. Now things have changed with with again the professional sports that come into that. So the United States Olympic Committee. They find a way to help fund. So it's not that athletes aren't making any money, right? So the United States Olympic Committee yeah. and NGB, NGBs like ourselves, like USA Water Polo, we have to build our entire business uh, model uh, and with some help, obviously with the USOPC, to find ways to fund the athlete competition, their training, right, um, their needs, their, their monthly stipends, right? All these things come from us. So they're getting it um, and they're getting some. And, and for some, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good living. Uh, it reaches a point, though, right, where if you have a spouse, a partner, children, right? Um, beyond ambitious, where there's limitations, I think, to what that you could do with that kind of monthly stipend that you get. Um, but it's not that they're getting nothing, um, but it's coming from a, a level where it's um, essentially enough for just for them to train, right? And then you couple that with, if they're doing that, are they working? Are they getting internships, right? Are they are they doing other things outside of the pool to keep their careers advancing, as many of them are are. are have college degrees already and are trying to look, look ahead in their careers. So um, it's happening and it, it works, obviously it's worked well for us. We've won a couple gold medals on the women's side, won a silver medal on the men's side in, in 2008. Mm-hmm. It, it happens, right? It works. Um, but crises like these really shine a light on it is, is my point, Sharif, you know?
2: Along with that, talking about a crisis like this and not having Olympics and winning another year, what happens with the older athletes? I know for USA Boxing, it's, they changed it a couple of years ago where it's 19 to 40 years old. After 40 years old, that's it. You know, your time is over in the ring. For, yes. What about for USA Polo? Is there an, is there an age requirement that, or,
1: that they get cut off? No, no. I, for us, if, they want, if the athlete um, wants to continue to train and prepare regardless of their age, we're going to allow them that opportunity. Right? As long, oh. as, they're earning, as, long as they're earning a spot in the training group, we want them there, you know? Our, our, our actually issue goes the other way, right? Because of the situations I described before, the challenge that we've had over the years is to keep athletes older in the process, right? So you can get an athlete who's younger, stick around because if you're in college and you get some exemptions, maybe you take a year off, you get the, the Olympic waiver from the NCAA, right? And you kind of work through that. We've had plenty of that. And maybe a few years after college, we keep them around. Generally, the average age of our team Is always around 22, 21. Our men's team has been younger, right? But if you look at the gold medal winning men's teams over the last, let's say, four or five Olympics, their their average age is around 29 years old, right? Anywhere between 30, right? So the challenge is for us. We want those athletes to be older, right? For us to be competitive, we want them to be older. Specifically on the men's side, on the women's side, right, where the average age of the gold medal winning teams has been around 23, 24, and we've been able to match that with our system here. Right. So it works out. It lines a little bit better in that way.
0: So, Coach, this is go back a little bit. Uh, We talk about, you know, the average age being about twenty one, twenty two. I don't want to say it's a red flag, but people in minority communities around the country, specifically people of color, you know, that don't swim that have never heard about water polo. You know, like myself, I'm, I grew up in Texas. I didn't know about water polo until I met you in 2006. Right. I mean, I was yeah. 10 years old at that time. I had, I thought, well, I heard water polo. I'm like, you know, where the horse is at? You know, I <laughs> do so, not like, know anything about water polo. It's not because right. I didn't like it. I just right. never heard about it. that water polo, mm-hmm. lacrosse crew. Like, I didn't know anything about that stuff till I came to Bucknell in 2006 when right. I met you. Yeah. So what do you think is um, – The next, or or what do you or what do you strive in as yourself being a minority, uh, Mm -hmm. to help grow the game, from more more at the grassroots level, branching out outside of California and on like East Coast of California.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's and that's a loaded question. There's a lot. There's a lot to that. Hey, first of all, not only did you not know anything about water polo in 2006 when you came to Bucknell, we were in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, right? Like we were in the middle of Pennsylvania. The second you got off campus, right, there was horse and buggy and Mennonite (laughs) Amish. I (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) That comes comes within itself, right? And then to have a water polo program there and and a historic water polo program, there that was a whole other thing. And from where you're at, Texas, one of the interesting things, Everest, I'll tell you too, is that starting in the fall of 2021, again, if everything continues on pace here and and we we all recover and we get out of this this pandemic, uh, the UIL in Texas, as you know, right, the governing body of sports for high school sports in Texas is going to start sponsoring Boys and Girls Water Polo officially um, in the fall of 2021. So since 2006, Really? yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great big
0: deal. That,
1: That's yeah, big right there at U-
0: UIL is big too.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's big. So shout out to all our people in Texas who made that happen. And they've been working on that for 20 years, right? So when wow. we met in 2006 at Bucknell, I did have a couple of Texas athletes. Every once in a while I'd get a Texas athlete to come in um, that we'd recruit there. Now the reality is that becomes a high school sport UIL level in Texas. You're going to start seeing – a huge boon in participation there. You're going to see access. It's a huge mm-hmm. game changer, right? Because you all know, I mean, California, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois, right? When the big states that have like where athletics is thriving, right? Across the board. I'm not talking about aquatics, just aquatics. And I'll address that question in a second. Just, a, just athletics in general, right? Where there, there's these big ecosystems for sports and, and, and on the institutional level, scholastic level, that's going to translate to our- school level too, level. economics- money behind it in those states. Absolutely, absolutely, right? Absolutely. You see it in hoops, you see it in football, right? You see it in all the sports, right, where the, where those are this kind of big states. So a state like Texas to kind of have put its backing behind water polo, it, it's going to be big. Um, but it, but you're right that that access is now slowly coming its way. It's taken a long time for that access to come. And for, for people that look like us, right, and people who come from communities of color, there's a, a, there was a good time magazine article. I want to say about maybe seven, eight years ago, that came out and said that 50% of Americans can't swim period, right? Like 50% of Americans don't know how to swim. And then with that 50% of Americans that can't swim, there's a disproportionate the dis, amount of that, of that number are people of color, right? Mm-hmm. So generally that's the case. And we can get into the history of why that is right. and access right. to pools and, you know, being banned from the beaches, being right. banned from the pool. That, there's a whole history that's, a wonderful thing for I everybody to learn and understand why that's the case now, right? Um, why communities of color um, have such hard access to learn to swim. Um, but because of that, right, our sport tends to be a fairly homogeneous, right? Um, and so within that subsect, right, within that subsect, the people we have, it's, you know, affluent. It's fairly affluent um, and, and, again, fairly homogeneous. The way to combat that is going to have to be access to these facilities, right? And so things like the UIL I'm talking about, like if, you, if you're in a community of color and there's no, there's no pool there, but your school has a pool, right? And the school didn't offer the kind of programming that would allow you to even get in the pool in the first place, right? How are you ever going to learn how to swim? How are you ever going to learn how to, 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 to be in the water? So I think the way we're going about it is kind of building the infrastructure across the country. So that there's, uh, you know, one of our slogans is like polo in every pool. If we can have every pool and understand there's a sport called water polo, then I think the access uh, points grow. And as the access points grow, you'll see a, a more diverse group of people uh, start playing the sport.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds amazing. You know, New York uh, doesn't have that much water polo. I've been swimming since I was four years old. I've always been interested in this sport, but I've never had access. I have access to pool. I can yeah. swim, but there was no water polo. But, you know, right. um, I understood and got into the sport a little later. Still haven't done it. <laughs> you know, you yeah. know, even though, but I do watch it when it's on the Olympics. I'm in. Right. You right. have, you know, you have viewership for me. Um, I would like to know personally, just because, uh, because I swam myself. How do you recruit your athletes for polo? Obviously, you have to have the base for swimming. But right. how do you get that transition from? You know what? We're going to take you because you're a great swimmer and you're mm-hmm. going to be a polo player. Yeah. Or, you know, you got a great arm. You know, you yeah. play baseball. I need to get you in the water. I, I, I'm i kind of curious in the process on how you kind of pick your athletes, get your athletes, and also recruit.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I think there's, there's two parts to that. One, I would say, is it's very – the last 10 years is very different than prior to that, right? So the last 10 years with the growth of youth sports in America and the growth of the youth sports business in America, you've seen a huge boon in – water polo clubs, water polo competition, water polo events at the 12 and under, 14 under, 16 under, 18 under uh, level. Oh, okay. So yeah. now this starts to mirror what's happening in other sports, right, where there's, mm-hmm. like, this ecosystem of AAU-type sports, right, of, of junior, junior youth sports. And that's actually grown tremendously. And in New York, even we have two clubs now in, in Brooklyn, right? We got um, Greenwich, Connecticut, not too far, playing a lot of water polo, right? So, like, in your area, you're starting to see that. It, how's, it, how's it happening? It's happening at the, at the club level. So because of that infrastructure building in the age group level across with clubs, U.S. water polo, um, about 2000, after the Beijing Olympics, right, uh, really uh, invested into something called an Olympic development program, right, where Mm -hmm. then all those clubs that are already playing kind of on that age group level will help identify their best athletes and then feed them into our Olympic development program. And once they get fed into that Olympic development program, which represents different regions across the country – Right. And we all they all kind of come together for competitions and tryouts over the year. Then you take the base of, you know, probably 50,000 athletes playing water polo across America and narrowing it down to uh, a 14 international team, a 16 international team, an 18 international team. Right. And then those feed into our junior team, senior team. Right. Uh, athletes that end up going on. Uh, OK. Yeah. Now, that's that's more recent. Right. That's more recent. Yeah. Because really yeah, with the the. The, the where you see that bearing fruit or the fruition of this is, is really happening as we speak, right? So if, you, if I were to look at our men's, current men's and women's teams that were competing to go to Tokyo, many of them had gone through the process in one way, shape, or form. Many of them have actually even gotten cut in the process along the way, right? Which is there's value in that as well. You get cut and then you get re-identified in college or um, you, you miss the process when you were younger, but then you get re-identified at another point in college or in our national league or other events that we see. And so at some point, there's, this, there's these different avenues that everybody kind of comes back to at the end. But because mm-hmm. of it, if you were to ask some of our, um, uh, the athletes on our women's team, they would say, and they've been saying, saying this in the press before, that they met a lot of their teammates when they were younger in the Olympic development program. So they've kind of kept in touch and had bonds along the way. Um, same with our men's team, it's happening. But the, the older our teams get and the older the Olympic development program gets, it's the, the more of that continuity you'll see. Right. So again, so 10 years is pretty young, I guess, in relation to what the longer long-term outcomes are going to be. But prior to that, to your point, Sharif, I mean, you, the way you found water poles, the way, the way I found water polo. I, I like, like I ever said, I, I played high school basketball. So I was just, I was on the basketball court. And then someone mm-hmm. said, Hey, you should jump in the pool. It's pretty hot in South California. And I didn't even <laughs> play water polo. My fresh, I didn't play water polo. I didn't even know what it was before my freshman year in high school. I had no idea. Right. I'm like, what is this sport? They didn't play it in Egypt too much at that time, right? We didn't play in, um, in Houston. When we got there, it, it's some, it wasn't on my radar. But the, the gym, basketball gym was near the pool. And I had a friend who said, hey, after basketball season, you should jump in. So I tried swimming right after I tried basketball um, and then jumped in and tried to start playing water polo the summer between my freshman and sophomore year in high school. I mean, and if you were to talk about this, is, again, we're talking about like early 90s or whatever, right? Mid 90s. Try to do that now in the sport. You're way behind. Just like, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, you're behind. Like, how does that happen? Right? Like, but back then, um, and, and as the sport was developing again, prior to this recent boon, you were taking guys off the basketball court, girls off the basketball court. You were getting baseball players. you were getting softball players. who just like, yeah. Hey, let me try this sport out and let's see, let's see where it goes. And so, um, now it's become more formal. The college game is growing. There's more varsity programs at the NCAA level, right? So you're seeing high school grow, club grow, college grow. All these things are happening, so it becomes a little more formalized. But before, it wasn't like that.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I got okay. a question. I got a question going back to the grassroots, real quick, Coach. Yeah. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of reasons why minorities, you know, don't get in the pool, don't know how to swim, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I'm a father of a seven-year-old son. You're a father of two children. Yeah. What are you saying to these parents? that are in minority communities and say, Hey, water polo was cool. It's fun. Come out and try it. Like how, like how are you changing the parents' mind that, you know, water is bad or how, what are y'all saying and doing as far as that concerned specifically to the minority community?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm glad you asked that. Cause just on a, on a personal level, I'm really, I'm really passionate about it. Right. And I think there's the other people in our, the other people in our sport that look like us are also very passionate about it. Right. Because there's so few of us together. Right. So we have, Kind of this like informal conglomerate of minorities and water polo that think about these. Maybe, hey, look,
0: maybe you start the minority water polo association, the MW. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the unofficial president of it right now. Let's put it down I got here.
0: Hey, I'll be I'll be your secretary.
1: Yeah, hey, we could all do this together. <laughs> if you're a swimmer, you can come our way, right? So you get out. Um, yeah, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so we get but we it's true, we just get excited about it. So it happens on an informal level, I would say. Everest, right, it, ha- it happens all over. We're advocating for this in our community. So you, pe- you see people like, um, you know, Brenda Villa, um, uh Hispanic uh, young woman from Commerce, California. She played in four Olympics, right? And and I think another good for people outside of water. Everybody in water knows about Commerce. People outside of water don't know about Commerce. Commerce, the city of Commerce in Southern California, right? Um, a vast majority Hispanic community, right? In um, in in LA, in LA County, uh, and in that area. Uh, they have a sponsored aquatics program at the city pool uh, where it's at. And so they've had a waterfall club now for uh, a long time. It was started by um, a few people several, several decades ago. But you see the fruition of that because the city sponsored it. The city puts in money. They're able to give access at that time. Um, and then so the same thing happens, excuse me, in some other parts of the country. Uh, where there's access given that way, and then the promotion comes. People like Brenda Villa, Ashley Johnson, our gold medal winning goalkeeper from uh, the 2016 Olympics, first African American ever to make a team, right? Uh, a, a team in the United States on the uh, uh, on the women's side. She's a big advocate for it. You know, her sister. We got we had an Olympic hopeful on the men's side, Max Irving, who was coming up. And again, these are conversations we're all having internally. And I think to answer your question specifically, like what we're telling the parents is, we just got to make sure that they know that the pool in the area has low barrier access for them to participate uh and i'll be honest you know and just direct that most of the that infrastructure that i was talking um to you guys about before the aau type model of the 12 and under 14 or 16 under 18 under polo that's grown across america that hasn't necessarily been their number one priority because when you're building a club you need finances right to build your club and the economics of those clubs i don't think have done a great job of addressing it um, as an NGB, same thing. For us, we want to make sure that we have an infrastructure so we can build our sport, right? I think the net, it, it's unfortunate, but what becomes a luxury within this type of youth sports system in America, it's a luxury to think about diversity. It's a luxury to think about, right, these young, um, the, these communities, but that can't be the case moving forward, and, 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 and that's something we're going to, I'm going to, per, obviously, personally and then professionally going to spend a lot of time with uh, in the near future to make sure that that happens. Yeah, because
0: when I think about water polo now that I've grown up into as a strength and conditioning coach the last fifteen years, both in college and in the NBA and overseas, mm-hmm. like the very first thing I think about when it comes to water polo is that these are amazing athletes. Like they're tall, they're in yes. shape, they're fit. They seem like they can seamlessly look like they could play any sport, you know, basketball yeah. or football. But mm-hmm. the issue that I always see is that none of them ever look like me. It always seems like the kids are coming from the Ivy League schools, or that it always seems like it's more of like an elitist type sport. And like, but like you said, things like getting the UIL involved, having more grassroots, right. spreading out to different parts of the country will help that. You know, so I think that you know USA Water Polo and everybody else involved getting that word out will help more and more because like an old guy like me has been in the game a long time. I look at water polo, and I know they're such great athletes because I'm a strength coach. But it's like mm-hmm how can I appeal that to like my son or to my nephew or things of that nature?
1: Yeah. And, and that, and you're hundred percent right. And that's why we break that. we try to break down that stigma everywhere we go. Right. That's why you, when we have these athletes that are very vocal, people like myself, that are very vocal about this and, and not shying away from it when in interviews like this, I'm not going to shy away from it. It's something we got, we could do a better job of, and we have to break that stigma down for everybody. Right. And, and I think, the, the first and foremost thing is it's the water, it's facilities, right? It's facilities and it's access to those facilities because that's, water polo is expensive, right? For all of us growing up, right? Um, you know, in, in Egypt, I'm sure it's the same in Nigeria, right? Uh, uh, for you, the, my, my cousins, when I went back to Egypt to visit, their favorite sport is is soccer, right? is is, is European football because they can throw down a couple of dirty T shirts, right? And that's the goal. And then they can roll up some rubber bands or get a ball and they kick it around. And we play <laughs> soccer for hours, right? right so right. think about just think about that extreme <laughs> level of accessibility for the sport right. versus the extreme inaccessibility for something like water polo, where you got to get into the pool. And then once you get into the pool, are there lifeguards? And once you get into that pool, is it deep enough? And once you get into that pool, are there balls? Are there you know are there goals? Are there are there other people to play with? You can't just shoot or shoot around by yourself very often, right? So there's there's just really a lot of barriers just from a physical standpoint that we have to start breaking down. So when we say polo in every pool, we're making sure, hey, do, do all these pools have balls? Do they have goals? Do they have uh, access, you know, for people could just come in? A basically trained coach, some, we have a program called Splash Ball, just some introduction where, hey, it doesn't matter what suit you're wearing, you know, you don't have to wear the traditional water polo suit, you don't have to even... You know, float the whole time like you guys were talking, beater the whole time. Can you get on a floating device? Can you stand on the bottom? And just learn to play game and have fun. So that's what I would say to your son and to others who are six, seven, eight years old. You can go stand on the bottom of the pool, throw a ball around. And you realize this is a lot of fun. I'm outside or indoors in a water. I got a ball. There's a goal. And it can be really um, addicting once they get to that like, basic level of it.
2: You probably can get a lot more people in the pool by water polo itself. Giving them a ball, having them play with it, and then getting them in the water. Like, that would be their transition into the water instead of just saying, you need to learn to swim or you need to get in the water. Well, let's have some fun in the water. Let's, let's make this a game. You don't have to just, you know, learn to swim. You learn to swim while you learn to play.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's what splash ball is. That's what introduction of water pool is. That's what all those things. We'll let you sit on a noodle. We'll let you float on the ball, right? The ball itself is yeah. a flotation advice, right? So, like, you and my kids, when I try to get them in, they're not great swimmers. Yeah, my boys are um uh five and six years old right so they're they're water safe but they're they're not swimmers yet but if i give them a ball when they're in the pool right they just sit on the ball and they can float on it and see so your point Sheriff, you're 100 right now they're like that if we go in the pool without the ball they get upset right they're like well where's the ball yeah like I got <laughs> what's the point right what's the point so that that correlation is strong and so we got to make sure these pools all have balls and so there's yes yeah, yes and that, that's that's our it's job right yep yep yeah, yeah, exactly
0: I wanted to make sure that athletes had
1: access to a a shooting machine that they could take anywhere. So I came up with the concept to fold it into a duffel bag. I ended up prototyping with my friend Xavier, welding our first prototypes in the garage. I made it for myself. I also made it for the millions of other athletes out there that are trying to reach their dreams and uh, trying to make it out.
0: Right, welcome back to No Referees Podcast. Had to take a quick break. We're back with uh, John Abdu from USA Water Polo and Shree Farrell with FDNY. There was an article that came out recently about the growth of USA Water Polo and the growth of water polo in general around the yeah. country. Um, it just highlighted the dollars and cents that goes into USA Water Polo and water polo as a whole. Just touch base on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think like, like we talked about earlier, I mean, there's a big... Uh, there's a big upswing in people learning how to swim. There's a big uptick and people want to take advantage of their, uh, the facilities that they have access is starting to, to, to become greater, right. To the water, like we've been talking about, like again, can get better. needs to get better. We're going to keep working on that. But with the, with the growth of this accessibility and the awareness of water polo, you're, you're seeing it grow. And then more and more colleges, more high schools adding, uh, adding the sport on the varsity level. Um, that's going to have a trickle down effect too. And then there's also no, um, uh there's no secret here right the people for the 2008 2012 2016 olympics those were the, some of the first games that were really accessible on the internet and broadly broadcast right uh for everybody to see and we were jo- we were all joking earlier that i didn't even know about what water polo was until i was the end of my freshman year of high school right you didn't know about it until 2006 that we met in lewisburg pennsylvania right three the swimmer never really had access to it before but now you're talking about a generation of kids that grew up with the internet, with the accessibility of the games being broadcast, and then every four years they get a chance to look at it. So the the awareness level has risen a lot, but that takes time, right? And then now you're starting to see some of the fruit that comes with that awareness of uh, of the broadcasting and the accessibility of the sport.
0: I don't know what goes on in the four years in between Olympic Games. Are y'all just training? Are the kids just in college? Do y'all have competitions? Kind of walk us through, like – what the the timeline is leading up to, like, you had the 2016 Rio Olympics. What are they doing in 17, 18, 19? What what are they doing during that time frame?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. But So because of the diversity of the nature of the team, the makeup of the team, um, not the ethnic diversity we were talking about before, but, like, if I'm talking about athletes who are in college, we have athletes who have uh, families or athletes who are playing professionally in Europe on different times. Because the team is different, usually the first two years after the Olympics – um, most people kind of go where they need to go. They go back to playing in college. They go back to playing in Europe. Um, they may, they may have a job and training locally in small groups while they um, take care of their families or advance their careers. Uh, and then usually by that, by that third year of the quad, right. Um, uh, we start getting into something we call like full-time training, right? So that's about 18 to 24 months or so, uh, where the team is, is, is generally together. Now that can look different at different times, you know, but, um, usually about, I would say about two years before the game, it starts ramping up a little bit uh, with getting the group together. That also, um, in water polo, though, there's, uh, in the odd years, there are world championships. So in 2017, there was a world championship, uh, aquatics championship in Budapest. So um, we, made, we took a little bit of break after Rio, and then most of the team got back together, right? Those athletes, some athletes retired, some people transition, new faces come on, but then you go compete in a world championship and then hit the reset button on a yearly basis like that.
2: Do the professional European players, do they play in the World's and do they play in the Olympics as well? Are they, yeah. are they allowed to? They are. Yeah. So how, how do you compete with pros that are playing all year round and be competitive? Some, not sometimes, but, you know, happier athletes or, you know, athletes that have careers and then also work on the side and it's just yeah. a huge mix. Like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's what we do. You hit the nail on the head, Sharif, right? You hit the nail on the head because that's the challenge on the men's side, right? When you have professional men's water pole leagues that can pay people well into their 30s, right, to keep playing the sport year-round, professionally, pay them enough to, again, pay enough relative, relative to living in the country that they live in, right? So <laughs> water pole is definitely um, dominated by the former Yugoslavia, right? So you're talking about Serbia, Montenegro, Croatia, Hungary, um, Hungary won gold medals in 2004, 2008, 2012, uh, before serbia winning in 2016 broke their streak right so there's a great infographic i show around sometimes where um for the past uh 20 some odd years of olympic uh, gold medalists on the men's side that within a wall were born within a, a hundred mile radius all right all uh, born with
2: yeah
1: they homegrown yeah yeah and it's, it's happening rent. right there you go so i mean you think about uh, the last, the we, so we won a silver medal on the men's side. I think we are just talking about the men, the women are, it's a different uh, makeup, right, as it comes in this. But um, the last time we medaled in the Olympics on the men's side it was 2008. And when we, won, when we won the silver medal in 2008 and beat a lot of those teams along the way, if we're just talking specifically Olympic Games, um, that was because the majority of that group were professional athletes that, that stuck around and were, were, were a little bit, you know, quote unquote, older. The older. big group of these ah, European okay. dudes, they, they started around some just, some of the best players we've ever had to play our sport domestically and committed themselves not only to stick together, but also continue to play in Europe and play later in their life. So that our average age was a little bit closer to the one I was talking before. It wasn't, wasn't perfect. It was still a little younger, but but it was closer to that, to that range. And they were professional athletes. And then the time of the, before that for us, the win uh, medals came prior to, uh, we uh, were in the 80s. The last time the USA men's water team won medals was in the 80s. And that's prior mm-hmm. to the breakup of this Yugoslo- Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia used to be one team. There would just be one Yugoslavia team you'd have to play, and they'd be pretty darn good, right? And we'd, we'd, you'd see them, USA versus Yugoslavia, and a lot of gold medal games in international competition, including the Olympics in the, in the 80s. Um, but after 91, right, after uh, these countries break up, now you take that one Yugoslavia and you turn into – Four countries right and then the, now the, the the playing field uh, uh, spreads and as you can see what I said before about that 100 mile radius that's where they've all, all kind of come from so it's a challenge but we're able to be competitive in our own way because clearly we were able to, to do it in '8 Obviously even recently we won be- right before the Rio Olympics uh, we won a silver medal at the World League super final with our men. we're competitive but that's the, what you hit on Sharif is always going to be the gap for us as you're talking about professional athletes versus amateur athletes in our sport right and so we have to continue to work to bridge that gap and that's what we're doing as we build this infrastructure and grow the sport
2: you were saying that some of the uh some of your athletes go over to europe and play Mm -hmm. now do you promote that and would you promote that even more and harder be like you know what we need you to continue to perform go over to europe continue to play pro ball so you're playing all year round and come back let's get this gold medal for usa
1: so absolutely right we highly encourage it so even the stipends that we talked about that they get through uh, USA water pole and the Olympic committee, the support that we give them, we continue to provide that support for them, even if they go overseas and sign contracts. Right. So we uh, want to encourage them just to say, like, we're going to take care of you no matter what. And you're, and you're going to be taken care of. And we'd really like you to go. There's obviously there's challenges in that. They're going to get better if they go to Europe. We know this for sure. It's clear. Um, when we talk about that 2008 um, team, most of them played, played in Europe. A lot of them played at a high level. Some of them were the better players even out there. Right. Like we were, Uh, We were, we were working that league was, was in conjunction with how our our development. Um, But now, again, now fast forward to 2020, okay. And talk about athletes that may have graduated from, from an NCAA institution with a great degree and the friends, their roommates and their friends already making six figures out in jobs, you know, uh, in the marketplace. Um, Some of them have uh, spouses already, right. uh, Are starting to get married, starting to settle down, you know, starting to work on this. The idea of going to Europe. For an extended period of time, has become uh, it's become a challenge, right? In the sense of, where it's not. and those opportunities then become less. So it works both ways. The, the reality is, last year, this past season, we had more of our men's training um, group playing in Europe than ever before, right? So they they were out there, but we had a lot of young guys, a lot of young guys hungry, want to take advantage of those opportunities. That market has also dropped because if you're a top, let's say you're a top Italian club team, or you're a top Croatian club team do you really want to help the United States get a lot better at water pool by giving a, a fat contract to an American dude yeah. to come over and play? It doesn't always happen. It's not like they're running out there,
0: right? Mm. Coach, I got a question for you. In the, in the event that you're running out of, uh, let's say, pool talent, mm-hmm. when you, you say, I need, I need to go get some, some elite swimmers, you know, do you give a call to uh, USA Swimming uh, guys like Dave Durden and uh, uh, guys like that, coaches over there? And say, hey, man, I need, I need some players. I need some athletes. Send me, like, <laughs> you know, you hear about, I don't want to say, like, poaching talent, but how do you, yeah. you know, see that they got a, a swimmer over there that may not be – I mean, that ain't a good swimmer for y'all. That's a good polo player for us. Like, how do y'all, do y'all ever have cross talks about that, or if y'all do, like, how those things work?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and, you know, you see it a lot in the Olympic movement when you hear things like track you – you see in track and field, right? You see it in bobsled. You see it in, like, team handball. You'll see it where they're like – you know, some of our guys will go to team handball, right? If they can't make our group, then they, some, some people move to team handball. Bob uh, bobside will pick up the track runners. And so you see, it in, you see it more in the individual sports, and they can go kind of back and forth. With water polo, by the time, especially for swimming, so let's go back to what we talked about with youth sports. Swimmers are specializing at a very, very young age now, right? And then this is, a, a, again, a bigger difference than what we used to see 10, 15, 20, even 20 years ago, right? Now the people who are making that Olympic swim team with the coaches that you're talking about, um, Everest, uh, have been specialized in swimming for a long time. So if that crossover ever happens, it's going to happen at a younger age, right? It happens at younger. You see it on, a lot on the, on the high school mm. level, right? You'll see it in the high school, that 1600 group. It's like, look, uh, I'm either, you know, someone's been playing both water polo and swimming and they've been doing really good at both. And then they realize my college opportunity or my national team opportunity is going to come from one or the other. And then you see them make a choice, right? So will water polo will lose, athletes to swimming at 16 or say hey look i'm really fast i gotta go get that swim scholarship i gotta go that route and then some sw- but then we also gain swimmers are like look maybe i'm not going to excel as far as i want in swimming right at the highest of levels i got a good chance to take these swim skills and transform it with to water polo and and do well um we've also you know, look we had an athlete in our pipeline on, on the men's side that i was uh, pretty pretty excited about born in 1999 6'4 good athlete good hands good arm baseball player uh we have our pipeline we we're working them out uh, up into the way he was from the Pacific Northwest, uh, Northwest region. And then more you're at right now, Everest, the Chicago white Sox decided, Hey, we're going to give this kid a minor league, you know, baseball uh, deal. Hey, he like,
0: hey, can't turn that down.
1: Yeah. He can't turn it down. Right. I'm saying, Hey, you no know, stick around. Maybe you got a shout, you know, like keep developing <laughs> and you know, one, one day you can, you know, go to Europe and play and, and all that. And I, we actually had a pretty good package to sell, but that's nothing like the, you know, about half a million dollars you got to, pick up a minor league contract, right? And start working in the farm system for the White Sox kind of early on. So there is a talent. You're, you're right. It's a good question. So there's a talent suck that comes out of us uh, away from us. And then we do get some talent that comes in, but it's at younger ages. and um, So the, the hard part for us is to keep them in the pipeline the whole way.
0: I was just thinking about that because you see a lot of the kids, like you said, your average age, you know, is 20, 21 and that you 16. So it's like almost they have five or six years of prime, you know, prime athletic talent in USA water polo. You have to maximize those years as, as best as you can, because majority of your athletes are college kids.
1: Yeah, yeah. And now the what I've been working on for the last several years, and what we've all been working the last several years, is how do we extend that, right? So we have a whole. It's not no. It's no secret what the challenge is, right? So now we're working on making sure that we get our athletes paid a little bit more money when they when they when they leave college. Again, not going to get rich, but is it enough to keep you? whole right during this time can we find them some small marketing opportunities and for them to make a little money on the side right in marketing and marketing themselves in any place they can can you get them doing some camps and clinics where they can promote their their expertise to make some money along the side there again again make them whole Um, and then can you get them uh, internships and jobs in the area of their interest right that keep them going uh in that sense and there's been a huge push for that lately and, and organized by our board of directors right to make sure that we have people who are at the, the highest level of their field then can mentor our athletes, right. And connect them to jobs later. And so if you can create a pipeline where we could do that, and then I'm sorry, the last thing in there is that we're working on building a facility um, in Irvine in South Orange County, because that so the very first thing I talked about when we talked about coronavirus going down was that my athletes were all over the place, right? Everybody was all over the place. But if I could say, Hey, here's this one spot, right? Here's your pool. You know, you're going to train here, find a job and a place to live within 30 minute drive of here. Right. That expands the opportunities that are available for them to stay in the game. Right. So you got to have a home. You got to have a back uh, a backbone of uh, professional resources. And then you got to provide the basic needs for them. And that's what we're building towards to extend this pipeline even further. And that's I'm I'm confident that's where we're heading. But that's not the kind of thing that happens overnight. Right. It takes time. And that's what we're providing for the athletes right now.
2: You have to have a sign in that new facility that says water polo only. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no yeah.
2: swimming water polo only <laughs> yeah <laughs> there will
1: be uh, there will be one of those but i don't know how publicly i can do it without getting yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's almost like
0: you're saying it's described like a, a practice facility basically
1: mm-hmm. yeah it'll be training and competition though i think i think one of the goals would be when as we build the as we build towards having this facility to potentially host be part of the hosting of the 2028 olympics right? Whether that's training or some of the group play games, right? Like you can have, you can build something that's training and competition, multiple pools, right? So the other things can be happening at the same time and it becomes a training center. I mean, that's one of the challenges, you know, like uh, talked about, talk about being the general manager of USA water polo versus being the general manager of one of the NBA teams you work for, uh, Everest, right? You can, as a general manager, I can pop out of my office, you know, and say, look, I need to talk to an athlete. I need to talk to the training staff. I need to talk to the medical staff. I need to get the Sports psychologist. I need to talk to the marketing department. Everybody's in the same building, pretty the much. Strength coaches.
0: Class. Hey, don't get the strength coaches.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, for sure. The straight they will be the first people I'd be talking to, right? So, um, so that's the—that's the whole point, right? Is having having those even a weight room ever? That's the whole. That's funny in itself. I mean, I was on a call yesterday where I'm still now trying to say, in if the lift, the bands get lifted, shelter home gets lifted, how am I going to find a weight room for our men's team to lift in? That's literally the it, one of the issues I had to spend a couple hours on the phone with yesterday. That, that shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't have to have the insecurity of a facility for an athlete. An athlete shouldn't have to wake up and say, well, how am I going to get stronger today? How am I going to be physically ready to play in the Olympics, right? And this is the, this is the, the uncertainty we're sitting in. So um, we, we need that spot. It's a training spot. It's a competition spot. And we need that continuity. It'll build more relationships and it'll build more, uh, more of a community that helps keep them in the game longer uh, as we've been talking about. It keeps them older, keeps them there, uh, playing further in their career what are you hearing from your counterparts who are in similar positions as you in other
0: USA uh, sport entities? You know, what are they saying about, you know, not having the facilities or being spread around? You know, I know, I'm sure you're not the only one dealing with this situation. Now what are your other counterparts saying as well?
1: Uh, They're they're in similar boats, right? We have, we have a really good community. Um, uh, You know, USOPC, the United States Olympic Paralympic Committee, they, um, they're a high-performance department. They have a high-performance department that, that keeps us all together. So even as we're on Zoom right now on Monday morning, you know, um, all the high-performance teams, Olympic teams, are gonna, we get together every Monday at 10 uh, for a collaboration under uh, our leadership there from John Crawley. And uh, he's the high-performance director for teams at the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee. And now we, we get together and we can trade stories like this. And we can, Ironically, on Monday, this coming one is going to be from uh, USA Volleyball. We're going to talk about some of their challenges. We work really closely with them because we're both Southern California kind of based sports, right? Where our facilities offices are all kind of based near each other and they're going through very similar challenges, right? They're going through exact challenges. And I think when you talk about Olympic sports, you got to break it down between team and individual because it's much easier to navigate the individual side of things from my perspective, right? Like I know it is for boxing, Sharif, right? Uh, But, and for, for swimming, right? It's okay. If it's one swimmer who's going to be swimming in college or with their club coach, they can be at the facility with their private coaches, get together. They figure it out. And then we get together at different, you know, these multiple moments. But we know they're going to go back to a club that's going to take care of them. Or they know they're going to go back to a place that's going to provide for them. Um, but with team sports, the ability to kind of bring everybody together and have, and build cohesion uh, tactically, technically, right? You know, everything that you have to do as, with a group as a team uh, is much different. So the team Olympic sports share a lot of those same things that we're talking about for sure.
2: I have to know, because you have the arm in, in a water polo and swimming, what specific training do you do uh, for that combination? Because, you know, you're swimming, you're using, you know, you're throwing, you're throwing hard, you're swimming hard, and you're doing sprint work in the pool. It's, it's a lot of different mechanics than just being on the land and just being in the water. So it's a combination of both. Like what, what specific do you, how do you specifically train for that?
1: i'm i'm gonna pass over to evers that's ever. that's that's actually how evers and i met right he's my strength and conditioning coach my water polo teams yeah uh, yeah so that's how that's how we (laughs) met but i'll tell you that he can get into the specifics but the general what you're talking about the throwing and then swimming is swimming as fast as you can and then getting up and throwing the ball as hard as you can and then wrestling somebody else for long this is all incredibly unnatural on the body right so the two places where you would imagine that the injuries happen are shoulders, massive shoulder injuries in water polo, and hip injuries. because You have to stay afloat the whole time. So we have to deal with shoulders and hips. And so there's a lot of injury prevention that goes into that. Everest was a big part of that. He kept, kept my guys and, and, and women healthy uh, uh, for the most part over at Bucknell because, it, you know, it's, it's, injuries are inevitable when you're doing that and natural movements you're talking about Charisse, yes. along the right. way. but specific exercises ever so that's why that's what you've been doing man so, yeah <laughs> I, know
0: one, I know one thing we used to work on well, with your teams back then I haven't trained water polo since then but we did work yeah. on a lot of uh, mobility a lot of uh, injury prevention you know a lot of uh, flexion flexibility stuff and when it came to like cardio you know these are, these are swimmers at heart these are these are people who love to be in the pool you know mm-hmm. some of the kids couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time yeah. you know yeah, so yeah. Well, I just would try to make things a little bit different for them, make it unique, you know, have them run on the stairs with a, a, a snorkel in their mouth, you know, uh, have, them hold, have them hold their hands over their head, running around on the track. You know, I just try to do things different that was, you know, it's not unique um, to just running running straight up and down the track or running around or something like that. You know, anybody can do that. But I wanted to make them uncomfortable because when you play water polo it's an uncomfortable sport to play you know you're yeah. doing a lot at one time so those are some of the things I used to train you know these are these are college kids you know, I used to hate before but you know they they, <laughs> they won you know so yeah
1: you know, that was good <laughs> it worked it worked but we do yeah you're right a lot of those shoulder bands kind of you know um, inward motion outward motion and we, we go through the whole thing right of making sure their shoulders are strong enough and prepared enough to similar to swimmers but we got to even do it more, right? Because more. You know, yeah, okay. Because of all that throwing and, um, and wrestling that goes into it. And then, you know, the hip side is generally on the goalkeeper side. Think about the goalkeeper. They do a lot more leg work than everybody else. So you get, there's a lot of comment that goes into that. So actually, and again, going back to the Olympic thing, one of the things I had to do when I took over in this director role, um, uh, about seven years ago was make sure that we had even full-time, um, medical managers, right? That was a, a, a I had to find budget money to make sure that I had people who were there could help me with sports medicine, which then could help connect me to better strength and conditioning coaches for our athletes that could connect us to uh, the nutritionists that we need, everything that we need to kind of bring, bring us full circle. Again, if you're training in a pro sport or something else, these resources and that the access to those things is, is pretty, uh, pretty easy. But when an Olympic sport for us, like well, again, we didn't have full time sports medicine managers till about five years ago. Right. And so that's that's a new thing for us. And, and it's been it's paid dividends to so the strength, conditioning, intervention, all those things across the board. So big shout out to them. They keep our athletes healthy. Chris and Larney, if they ever hear this, you know, love you guys because they're they're doing what they do for us to keep these athletes in the pool.
2: Just curious. Uh, what do you have your athletes doing now while they're quarantined? I need not know these quarantine workout uh, maneuvers <laughs> that you guys are doing. Keep strong <laughs> and keep swimming
1: yeah yeah well keeping swimming is a tough one right so, you know some people have access to a small pool or a jacuzzi or something maybe they can do a little a-beater or something but yeah i would say most athletes don't have access to a pool so our strength and conditioning coaches i've been sending them workouts like home home workouts that they can do on their own
0: okay. um
1: in their in their living rooms you know our our teams meet two to three times a week at a minimum um, so what they're doing they're in, in zoom right so they will we'll set up team meetings um you know we set up little microsites for the teams right when the Um, uh, lockdown started right Shelter at home started so that they can go to that site that's where they get their strength and conditioning needs sports psychology needs nutrition needs basic information on on um, you know how we function as a group Uh, video analysis both our teams are doing a lot of uh, video analysis these days particularly our men it's a good chance to get ahead I mean if you think about it there could be a another kind of awakening for our athletes that year um And a lot of we, you know, we talked about it negative and how do we ad- adjust, and how we go. But there could be some positives in that as well, right? So if I'm a 21 year old athlete that was trying to make the game uh, this summer, I'm gonna be 22 next summer. I'm gonna be a year older. I could be a year stronger, and I could be a year wiser by watching a lot of game film and watching and breaking down my opponents and studying who the, the teams are gonna be. We know that we've qualified for the games. We know other teams qualified for the games. That's not gonna change, right? Between now and then, a couple of new teams will get in on those last spots, last chance. So. There's a lot of at-home workouts, a lot of at-home video analysis, and just trying to keep them together um, as best as we can.
0: Well, Coach, before we get you out of here, you know, what is the, the, the next year going to look like for you and USA Water Polo leading up to the, the, the postponement of um, these Olympic Games next year in 2021? Now, what's the next 12 months going to look like for you?
1: That's a good question. I mean, even the next few months, what are the next few months going to look like for any of us right uh, we, we keep We're going to keep recording some of this, these, these types of things in our home with our you know uh, white walls in the back. Um, I think we just got I think the next few months is what what can we figure out about the certainty of training and other competitions? So we know that the Olympic Games are going to be in July uh, to early August of 2021 but everything that backlogs to that, which was what you're talking about is. Um, other competitions right so for example the world championships are scheduled for 2021 that's going to have to be rescheduled sometime would have been the same time as the olympics so is that going to happen before the games now is it going to happen after the games now you know what other major world competitions can we get to will the pro league start again Uh, if pro league start again am i are we going to allow athletes to go back and play in europe Um, if colleges open up again and those athletes who are taking time away from school do we allow them to go back to school and and keep uh and keep getting their degree i mean pe- these the same athletes we talked about in their age they don't want to graduate from college when they're 28 29 they want to finish their degree they want to finish their degree when they were with uh with their with their cohort um so we got to see when the colleges are going to open up is it going to be online learning are we going to have access to those facilities um so a lot of a lot of it is uncertain and but i think what we're waiting to find out on is what's the access to facilities what's the access to the schools what's the access to the leagues and what's the access to the the international competition calendar as it would be you know usually leading up to the olympics so still some uncertainty but the second we can start figuring out a little bit of calendaring we're we're going to jump on it everyone's in a holding pattern ready to go
0: well coach Abdu we we appreciate you joining us on no referees podcast um i it's been so long since we haven't got a chance to catch up, but good, good, good to catch up with you and just to see your trajectory. How you grown from high school coach, college coach, being a, a professional coach and being involved with the Olympics? And, and it's just I never I, I always I meant to tell you when I saw you on TV with the 2016 Olympics in Rio, I was like, dang.
1: Cole's got a full beard now. <laughs> hey, t- 2006 was a long time ago ever, you know, at this point, right? Four, 14 years ago, but I, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on here. Thank you. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been great. And I think honestly the best thing that's come out of uh, being involved in sport for this long at the collegiate and Olympic or whatever level on the way is building relationships and meeting people. And um, you know, there's a whole group of people out are just trying to do the best that we can with what we got. And so, um, it's been fun to watch you as well. It's an honor to be on here, the other guests you've had on here. have uh, been great. Sharif, great to meet you for the first time, too. It's, it's, it's appreciate you as well. pleasure and uh, uh, what you do for, for our people. And, and, and it's great to continue to be around high-performing individuals. And so it's great to be a part of this network. So appreciate y'all.
0: I appreciate it, Coach. Thank you for the kind words. Maybe Sharif can go uh, work with one of those uh, satellite clubs out there in Brooklyn. Yeah,
1: yeah. You
0: know what? I'm, I will look into it for sure.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna connect you right after this. I I got you now. I'm gonna connect you right away. So please. Yeah, I got you man.
0: <laughs> Everyone please again go follow Coach Abdu on his Twitter page at Coach underscore Abdu and on his IG page at Coach Abdu for all the latest things, USA water polo, you can see him chill with his family and his boys and you mm-hmm. can see the eclective mix of basketball jerseys that he has <laughs> <laughs> that, that any, sure. mitchell, any mitchell and ness fan will be happy to see <laughs> damn, damn straight mitchell and ness baby for sure we appreciate uh, you coming on to no referees podcast coach thank you so much for your time yeah thanks for having me take care John. thanks for listening to another episode of the no referees podcast don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this show. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at NoRefereesPod. To the next episode, we out.